prejudice. Roots of prejudice. I think probably next week I'll then talk about effects. I'd love to tap as one message, roots and effects of prejudice, but I think I'll only be able to deal with roots of prejudice and I'd rather then go deep into that. Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen? You see, when you know how behavior was learned, it becomes easier to unlearn it. When you understand how we learned certain ways of doing what we do, it becomes easier for us to unlearn those ways. And many times as Christians, we carry prejudice in our hearts, but it's unconscious. Sometimes it's subconscious. But I believe that God wants to make us conscious of these things so that we repent of them. Amen. How many of you know that you can't repent of something that you're not conscious of? So a powerful process we go through as believers is to become conscious of things that we were not aware of. And I want to show you that very powerfully from the Word of God. We're going to deal with roots of prejudice. Where does our prejudice come from? Acts chapter 6 verse 1. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. So they were experiencing revival. It says, the number of disciples was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. So the Jews were complaining and the Greek people, Hellenistic means Greek, were complaining, right? But they're all Jews. They're all Jews, but some were from a Hebrew background, okay, Israelites, and others were from a Greek background. And it says here, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. How many of you know that you can be in a time of revival and there's still discrimination? How many of you know that even in the apartheid system in this nation, you could go to certain churches and the Holy Spirit was breaking out and breaking through? How many of you know that we can experience the power of God in this environment and yet even as we are growing evangelistically, we can still be in a situation where there's discrimination. Now let me just explain something. Discrimination is not the same as prejudice. Prejudice is an attitude. Discrimination is an action. So sometimes you can discriminate against someone else unknowingly without a sense of prejudice. Amen? But very often the two are linked. So if you've got prejudice against someone or towards someone, what ends up happening is it often results in discrimination. Amen? And we see this taking place. I like it in the New Living Translation. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribu distribution of food. So in understanding how racism and prejudice takes place in a nation, we have to understand the different types. How many of you know that there's covert racism? And please, if you haven't listened to the other messages, just catch up via YouTube, because there are various things we've covered that are a foundation to this message. There's what we call covert racism. This is where you have, you're prejudiced against a particular group of people, but you hide it. And it's very deceitful. Let me give you an example. There was a time when my family went to a particular resort at Hearties, right? And uh, we went with the Andersons, you know, you know, Sean Anderson and Kathy Anderson and their family. But we were driving in different cars. So they went before us 
right? And they arrived there and went through to the particular resort. We were just planning to be there for the day. And then we followed afterwards. And we get there, and at the entrance, there were two older, white, Praetorian type of people. I think they were sort of maybe unemployed and they were just working there. I don't know what the setup was. But they basically said to us, no, we don't accept day visitors. We only accept those people who are going to be sleeping over. And we said, well, our friends have just gone through. We're actually with them together. No, sorry, it's not us. Our boss said that. How many of you know that that could be a form of covert racism? Are you hearing me this morning? All right? Because we then phoned the Andersons and we said, these guys are not allowing us through, but they've just allowed you through. And Sean Anderson was really upset and they ended up leaving the place too. And he came and he challenged the guys and he says, if this is because of skin color, you guys, all right? And they're like, no, this is what we were told. So covert racism, the way it often works is, they might have been told that by their boss, no day visitors, but then they had a positive prejudice toward the people who had white skin. Are you hearing me? They might have been told no day visitors, but then they let these ones through, but then the law seems to apply to us. That could be one way. Another route could have been they made it up. All right? And we see that happening in our society. There's also what we call structural racism. And structural racism is also very, very subtle. It's to do with how society is structured. So for example, you might have someone who's got a dance school, for example, and they make a decision that we don't want certain people to come to this particular dance school. So they'll only advertise it in a newspaper or a magazine that's of a certain language that a lot of people of You know what I'm trying to say? A lot of people don't understand that language, won't then come. Okay? That's a form of structural racism. Are you hearing me? And I addressed the issue last time and I said, you know what? Some people have got this mindset where they think, especially in this country, that if you're a black person, a so-called black person, you can't be racist. That's not true. And the reason they give is they say because white people have the economic power and racism is to do with power. But I said to you there's structural racism, there's institutional racism. A lot of our institutions today, especially our government institutions, are not run by white people. And how many of you know that you can go to a certain area and I shared with you the story about my time at home affairs and it doesn't matter what shade you are. You can be mistreated by a person who might have a particular bias. So we need to search our hearts and say, God, I want your truth to be in me. Amen? When we're dealing with issues of stereotypes and issues of prejudice, we're basically dealing with demonically inspired lies that the enemy has whispered into people's ears. And based on those lies, we end up marginalizing certain groups of people. When you have a stereotype toward a particular group and you've labeled them in a particular way, very often it means you've believed a lie about those people. And I'm going to go into detail with regards to that today. You see, institutional racism or structural racism, it's placing ethnic minorities, right? Placing them in a lower position through systematic policies 
economic policies and political structures. So we end up living in a society where you might all be citizens of your nation, but you go around feeling like you're a second-class citizen. There was a time when we were living in Zimbabwe where my wife, as a white Zimbabwean, actually felt like she was not wanted by that nation. Someone who's got a birthright in a particular nation, born in Harare, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwean through and through, selected in terms of the sport that she did, representing at a provincial level, at a national level, but can feel estranged from her own country in particular seasons, especially with the land grabs and the rhetoric around it, where at some stage you kind of felt like, okay, if you're a white person in Zimbabwe, you're not wanted. Are you hearing me? Right? There's a term that was coined back in 1970 called microaggressions. And microaggressions are those terms that are used, those insults, repeatedly towards ethnic minorities in a particular nation. Things that people are called, and it's called a microaggression. And it can leave you feeling like, I don't know if I really like my country, even though your birthright is there. You know that we actually had a challenge, um, some of you might know, those of you who are Zimbabwean in this place, do you remember when they came up with the law where they said you can't have dual citizenship? What is the thinking around that? They said you can't have dual citizenship. So a lot of the white Zimbabweans submitted their British passports because they were going to lose out on certain benefits. A lot of them also submitted their Zimbabwean passports and kept their British ones. But then there was a, a, a thing that happened with the High Court and there's a guy who actually won the case because you can't lose your birthright. I've got someone I'm related to who's a Supreme Court judge and she explained to me and she said you can't lose your birthright. If you're born in a nation, they can't de-citizen you. Are you hearing me? So don't be conned by government policies and politicians who just come up at a whim and decide this is the new policy we're going to give you. If this is your nation, it's your nation. No one can take it away from you. Who has the right to say, no, 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 no. If you are also a citizen of that nation, no, you can't have this. If your mother is from one nation and your father is from another nation, you can have dual citizenship. Are you hearing me this morning? My kids potentially can end up being citizens of three countries. At the moment, they're citizens of two. And then we have these discussions at home, and they say, when I represent the country, which country do you want to represent? Ireland? Zimbabwe? South Africa? Are you hearing me? So in the process where people in Zim at a number of years ago were now submitting their passports and submitting this and that and so on, when we realized it, because my wife had submitted one of her passports, I won't tell you which one, but she had submitted one of them, and then afterwards we got this understanding that no one can just tell us that. You can't lose your birthright. Do you know that in this nation right now, there are groups of people who feel like they're second-class citizens. Their ID is just the same as your ID, but they feel like they're second-class citizens. Now, understandably, so those of us who've got IDs in this country and are permanent residents, you know, we kind of think, oh, we've now got an ID, we've now got an ID, but our ID, it only says what? Foreigner. And if you're a foreigner in this nation, you feel it. If you're a foreigner, you've got a certain number, right? And they can pick up and they can see that based on this number, this person is a foreigner. But there's a thing written on your ID 
you know, that you're a foreigner. And then even when you become a citizen, because many of us have lived in this nation for a long time, then you say to yourself, but what's the actual advantage? Oh yeah, it's uh, voting. Because when it comes to many other things, they're like, no, but you must have been a citizen before, pre-94. So we now have classes of citizenship. Are you hearing me? And that's why I shared with you last week about the importance of how we treat foreigners in a particular nation. Now, there are many reasons why prejudice occurs. I love what uh, I saw Mama, Ni Mama Ninja walking in. We were speaking about that earlier on, okay? Um, but what I love about this nation is when people break the stereotype. Because she shared with us on Friday night an experience she had where one of her kids, she's got two boys, and, they, uh, and she decided to send them to dance school. And then they saw a whole lot of white kids there, and, and one of her kids said, Mom, are there only white people here? And she said, well, what's wrong with white people? What's wrong if they're only white people? Do you see our role as parents to squash any stereotyping that comes up? Because we pass on things to our children. And what was so powerful as she shared the experience is that she then sent her kids there and she was not able as a single mom to then arrive in time to pick up her kids, but she could only do so after work. And it's amazing how this lady from the dance school said, I'll be a grandmother. I'm talking about white Africans. I'll be a grandmother. I'll be your kid's granny. And I will look after them. And this lady would then challenge the boys and say, have you done your homework? You can't leave until you've done your homework. Isn't that beautiful? And the next thing she arrives and then she sees the dad who's there, uh, I think the, one of the owners or the owner's husband of the dance school, there saying, we've just been playing rugby together. You see, God has called us to challenge division in this nation. God has called us to have a different spirit in this nation. God has called us to break down stereotypes and build community in this nation, not based on color lines. When you look at a nation, there are multiple causes of prejudice that can occur at the same time. In fact, in many societies, there are different or multiple prejudices. For example, you can have prejudice in terms of gender. That's prejudice against female members very often. Chauvinism, that's when men look down on women. Or misogyny, that's the hatred of women. And we see that happening in our society today. You can actually have prejudice against people of certain religions. As Christians, we love all people. As Christians, we're careful how we respond when our children ask us about people of other religions. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but I'm telling you right now, there's a way in which we can show respect for people who might come from a different religious background. Amen? That's what Jesus would have done. Instead of looking at them strangely because of how they dress, or what they eat and what they don't eat. One of the marks of relational maturity is the ability to celebrate diversity. And the church needs to be teaching more and more on this. One of the things about prejudice is it manifests itself 
in different ways and they're different extremes. They're the microaggressions that I was speaking about. There's the covert racism and racial prejudice that I was speaking about. But overtly you have the other extreme where very often the spirit of racism will lead to the spirit of death. Have you ever noticed wherever there's racism there's also violence and death? Why? Because very often racism at its extreme is a demonic spirit. It starts off with lies about certain people. And then that lie, that's an individual lie whispered into someone's ear like Hitler, ends up being a national lie against a group of people that we must protect ourselves against. And the result of it is genocide. Where we want to exterminate that group of people. Look what happened in Rwanda. Have you noticed that a lot of times when there is a civil war, a lot of times when there is genocide, extermination of a group of people, have you noticed that very often it's along racial lines or ethnic lines? You don't usually find a situation where it's like, let's just exterminate all the people who are in that social class. It doesn't matter what color they are. All the people in that social class we're going to exterminate. Well, you've got people in your own family who are in that social class, so you're not going to exterminate them, are you? Very often we see it along racial lines, tribal lines, and ethnic lines. There's a strong link between the spirit of racism and the spirit of death. I want to highlight the fact that there are some useful stereotypes. There are some useful stereotypes. For example, when you've got a clothing store and it takes into consideration men's height or the, the shoe sizes that they will wear, okay? That's a stereotype because there are a lot of women who wear bigger shoe size, who've got a bigger shoe size than a lot of men. But based on average, you make certain, based on the law of averages, you make certain decisions. I remember one time going to a particular hotel and we were organizing a conference there and the person could see my skin color, and this white lady said, just want to find out at the breakfast that we are organizing, um, do the people eat pork? Do you see where she was going? She was saying, no, I'm being serious, because I've organized certain things for certain church groups, and she was really meaning church, certain church groups with people predominantly of a certain skin color, and I know that they don't eat pork, so I just wanted to check with you. All right? There's nothing wrong when there's a stereotype, but you don't make an assumption, you ask a question. Amen. So there's a place for that also. I just wanted to say that as a qualifier. So what did Jesus do when it came to dealing with stereotypes and prejudice? In Luke chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. Just look at the way he treated children differently. How many of you grew up in families where you were told children must be seen, not heard? Okay, I'm seeing hands going up, I'm seeing hands going up. And you know the pattern I've seen when I do uh, corporate workshops? People who are now sitting at Manco level, at Exco level, you see them playing out those same roles that they played out when they were still kids. Children must be seen, not heard. So I now come to this meeting and I'm now sitting and I've always got this blank look on my face. And I'll just wait until my boss says whatever he needs to say, and I'll make sure I always agree with him. How many of you know that if you've always got that blank look, people will fill in the blank, won't they? 
And the way they fill in the blank is they'll just look at you. They won't tell you what they're filling it in with. They just walk off and say, do you see how she's not confident enough? I think she's three years away from that promotion she's so desperate for. Or you see them walking off and you see, do you see how she was resisting our idea? Just because you've got that blank look. Maybe you're just getting older and you've got a few, you know, wrinkles here and there. And it was just your thinking face. You must tell your story. If you don't tell your story, someone else will. And the catch is you might not like their version. Amen? You might not like their version. So I find it interesting how Jesus saw children and how he broke the stereotype. In Luke 18, verse 15 to 17, it says, Now people were even bringing their babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Now these guys were quite frank people. Were they? They're very open about what they did. They rebuked them. It's happening today. Where those of us who are free from prejudice, we welcome certain people into our lives. And we say we're going to mix and we're going to do this together and we're going to do that together. And you find other people might rebuke those people because of their mindsets. Don't play with that group of people. Look how Jesus deals with it. It says, and when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. They rebuked the children. Leave Jesus alone. Verse 16. But Jesus called the children to him. Isn't Jesus so amazing? Jesus could see that these guys, these kids, are going to leave this place thinking Christianity is not for me. Jesus is too high and mighty for me because they've been chased away. So the first thing he does is he ministers to the children. He doesn't get into an argument with his disciples, which is what we often do, isn't it? Hey, you guys must stop being racist. No, no, stop being racist. Hey, stop being racist. Hey, why are you being racist? You guys, you were racist. Just go ahead and love the people. Just go ahead and love the people who've been prejudiced against. That's exactly what Jesus did. Dad, did. Dad, did. <laughs> So he says, but Jesus called the children to him and said, let the children come to me. So before he made his statement, he actually said, come kids. And he affirmed them where they might have been wounded. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 17, truly I tell you, if anyone does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, he will never enter it. He then makes kids the standard. He doesn't say, just bring them along, but make them sit in the corner there as second class citizens. He goes the extra mile and he says, let the kids come. And guys, you know what? If you actually want to receive the kingdom, you have to do it like these people. Kids. Isn't that beautiful? When there's, when there's stereotypes, when there's discrimination, how are you treating the people who are the victims? How are you embracing them? How are you loving on them? When foreigners have been mistreated in this nation and you're a South African citizen, are you rising up and being a voice for the voiceless and saying to your friends, you know what guys, some of my best friends are from Zimbabwe. So please don't speak to them about like, like that. You know what, guys? Some of the most generous people that I've met are Nigerians. Please don't talk about them the way you're talking about them. How many of you do that? Jesus made children become the standard in terms of receiving the kingdom of God. Let me give you another example. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 to 13. 
It says here, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Isn't this amazing? This is a Roman guy, he's a centurion, right? He's got his hundred people or so that he's leading, and he comes asking, asking Jesus for help. That's humility. I feel that to have faith, you need humility. Humility that just says, you know what, Lord, I need you. That's a whole sermon there. Verse 6, Lord, he said. Isn't it interesting he calls Jesus Lord? He didn't just say, oh, Rabbi, hey, you Jewish teacher, let, let me try Jesus. He called him Lord. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Isn't Jesus amazing? He wants to hear from you, shall, shall I come and heal him? He's basically saying, tell me what you want. This is a, this is a question God asks. Shall I come and heal him? For some of you, God is asking you questions. Are you answering him? Some of you, God is asking you questions because you haven't told him what you want. Jesus says, so dude, what you want? Just state it. Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Humility again. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. Now here's the interesting thing. How were the Romans seen by the Israelites? Remember some of Jesus' disciples were like listen take these guys out. Listen we don't want you just to be a Messiah who saves us from our sin. Dude. Call your legion of angels and get rid of these people. They are oppressing us. So they didn't like the Roman soldiers. There was discrimination toward these people. And you could have justified it, couldn't you? You could have said, like, but these guys are oppressing us. So it's okay for us to be racist towards them. Come on. Right? It's okay for us to be racist. Look how they're treating us. Look at the soldiers. They're forcing us to carry things. What I find interesting is Jesus' rhetoric wasn't that. When it came to the soldiers, Jesus' rhetoric was, if they ask you to carry something one mile, say, offer two miles. Jesus came with a different spirit. And my question to you is, what will you do in a situation like this? Look what he did. He did exactly the same thing he did when it came to children. The children were being rebuked, told to leave Jesus. Jesus sets up kids as the standard for entering the kingdom of God. Look what he does. Look what he does says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel, that includes the disciples, who are following Jesus, who have given up everything and are following Jesus. <laughs> I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That would come across like a big diss. He has saying, but no, Jesus, we've been walking with you. We're the Jews. We're better than all these people. These are the heathen. That was the mindset these guys had. We are God's chosen people. And Jesus is saying, you know what, guys? Amongst God's so-called chosen people, I have not found faith like this guy's. He says, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. The group that has been marginalized, the group that has been hated by your people, what do you say about them? How do you see them? Do you see your people as better than other people? Just think about that and ask God to minister to you. Are you willing to praise an MP from a different political party to the one that you support? Are you able to say, you know what, even though this person is from that political party that I don't like, I'm going to praise this person? Or do you find yourself succumbing to pressure when you know everyone does not like those people over there, so I'll never praise them, I'll just keep quiet? Because that's what we often do. Because we want to be popular and we want to be accepted, not so. Let me bring it home for the soccer lovers. Are you willing to acknowledge that that guy over there is the best soccer player in the world, even though you don't necessarily support that team? You prefer the other one. If you're a Real Madrid supporter, let me just be very specific, are you willing to acknowledge that Lionel Messi is the best in the world? Or the other way around, if you're a Barca supporter, are you willing to acknowledge that maybe Ronaldo is the best in the world? That's what Jesus was doing here. He was a Jew. He was called the king of the Jews. But he was saying, I've never found such great faith as I'm finding in the centurion who's here. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Some key words I want to share with you. And as I do so, I'm going to ask, what is Jesus' heart in these areas? And how is it different to the prevailing culture? How is it different to what's going on in your heart? The first one is attitude. Attitude is a mental position regarding a particular fact or topic. What is your attitude like toward a particular fact or topic? Is it Jesus' attitude? Book of Philippians tells us we must have the same attitude that Christ had. Is it the same as Jesus' attitude or is it the same as the prevailing attitude in the nation? Secondly, there's the word bias. Bias. This is a personal judgment, often unreasoned and prejudiced outlook. It's a personal judgment, often unreasoned and prejudiced outlook. Do you have any bias towards someone or against a group of people? But it's irrational. It's not based on the truth of God's word. Another key word that we're going to be using quite a bit is discrimination. This is unfair treatment based on arbitrary standards or criteria. Unfair treatment based on arbitrary standards or criteria. What are you like with regards to discrimination? What's going on in your heart? Another word we might come across as we talk about this is emotion. This is a strong mental reaction to something, often causing sudden behavioral changes. What are those emotional triggers? What are those things in your emotions? Are they healthy or are they unhealthy? And what behavior do they cause? How do you feel when a certain person comes of a certain gender, of a certain skin color, of a certain way of speaking? when they walk into your house, when they walk into your church, when they walk into your office. How do you treat 
that person. And then, of course, there's the word prejudice, which I've defined for you before. And it comes from a word prejudicium. And it literally means to judge before. Judicium is judgment, and pre means in advance. Are there people you are prematurely judging? Based on how they look, based on their gender, based on their background. As Christians, we need to teach on this. Amen. Then there's an interesting word, socialization, which we also will mention at a certain point. This is the process by which a culture is learned. How many of you know that culture is learned? Some people are so resistant when you challenge their culture. No, 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 but according to my culture, culture can be changed. Culture is learned. Culture is basically the way things are done around here. Culture is your values, your norms, and your beliefs. They can change. Your beliefs can change. But sometimes we hold our culture in such high regard, and the moment someone challenges it, I remember there was a time when I was challenging the extortion that was taking place in terms of Lobola and how much people were paying. And I remember someone coming to me after the service and they were just hearing something else. It's like you were speaking against it. It's like you were... How many of you know that there are things in our culture that can change? And if you're a Bible-believing Christian, it's important to look and to say, how was I socialized? What are the things that I've learned? What are the things that I learned? These are usually the influences a youth experiences while they're growing up. What do I need to unlearn? What do I need to unlearn about how men treat women? I remember speaking to a particular guy who had been cheating on his wife, and I challenged him, and I said, where does this come from? Do you feel no conviction? And he says, you know what, when I was growing up, I just saw this. This is what I saw. My father was like that. My uncles was like, they were like that. They, were, they would always have someone on the side. There's certain things that are within our culture, especially those of you from polygamist backgrounds. You see some people are from polygamist backgrounds, and they try to be all formal and civil about things now, so they have that white wedding and so on, but because that polygamy is still in their loins, they've always got someone on the side. I mean, if you know what I'm talking about. It's better to just be a polygamist, openly to have your official wives. It is better than to make vows in a church and then have a stream of people on the side. Are you hearing me? Because then you're living a lie. Better still is to go by God's best where it's one man, one woman. Amen. <laughs> now, all of these things we're talking about are what we call perceptual distortions. But perceptual distortions are basically lies. God has called us to embrace the truth. For the rest of this message, I want to share with you some roots of racism, some roots of prejudice, so that we can uproot it. Would you like to do that? We want to uproot this thing. And I'm telling you right now, this message that I'm preaching, I'm preaching it to you, and I'm grateful. But I believe that it needs to get out and the nation needs to hear it. I believe the nation is going to hear this. Amen. Because we will not be a blessed nation as long as we are a racist nation. And you might have had your independence that we celebrated just the other day, Freedom Day. But I can tell you right now, true freedom is internal to external. The way God operates, he always starts from the inside out. And God wants us to be free people deep in our hearts. 
And you cannot be free in this country if you're still bound by categories, demonically inspired categories, and if you still socialize accordingly. Amen. I loved being at Emily and Theo's wedding. It was the most diverse wedding I think I've ever been to. Right? Because you see the Indian crowd, you see the black people, you see the white Afrikaans people and so on. And I saw that and I thought this is beautiful. Out there in that forest, so beautiful. Amen. The first root of racism, the first root of prejudice, the first root of stereotyping we covered last week. Evolutionary and biological myths. There's a guy called Xiao, Xiao Chong, in a particular article on a biblical view of diversity, he said this, race is an artificial pseudoscientific category used to describe people who share biological, biologically transmitted traits that are defined as socially significant. That's a very important statement there. It's where people have biologically transmitted traits, but these are defined as socially significant. How many things are you making very significant socially that aren't really that significant? It goes on to say, although it is commonly believed to be a scientific fact that there is actually no scientific, there is actually no scientific evidence to support the categorization of humanity into biological races based on physical traits such as skin color, eye color, and nose width. But what is even more important is that these rather insignificant physical traits are given social significance by ideology. The physical racial traits only have social significance because we give them significance. They are artificial. And that's what scientists have found. And I spent the whole of last week's Sunday talking about that from a scientific perspective. So root of racism, number one, is what I call evolutionary and biological myths. They're myths. Amen. Amen. Number two, collectivism, or what I call collectivist pride. This is where, for example, if you look on the African continent, most of our cultures are very collectivist. What do I mean by collectivism? It's that mindset that says, I will make decisions based on fear of banishment from my in-group rather than based on my individual conscience. That's how people make decisions today. It's where they have the mindset that says, my in-group is morally better than those people over there, out there. It's where you speak to someone and they say, no, stealing is bad. I believe stealing is bad, but it's okay if you're stealing from a white person. It's where they exaggerate the morality of the in-group and then they exaggerate and they villainize the out-group. I've been in situations where someone will say, I remember one family member when uh, a second cousin of mine was getting married to someone from West Africa and I remember the particular family member saying, yeah, but you know, she must be really careful because what, what are the values of, you know, because with West Africans, you know, what are, what are their values? And I said, well, this cousin of mine, what are her values? Why do we assume that the in-group, the insider, is always the morally pure? And it's the outsider that will endanger us. If you look at HIV AIDS, it's way higher in Southern Africa than it is in West Africa. It's relatively, extremely low in Nigeria. 
If you look at fornication and infidelity, it's way higher in Southern Africa than it is in West Africa. I'm talking research, I'm talking fact. And yet the stereotype is, ooh, these people, what are they going to do? And we're like that even with our children. We've got this positive bias toward our children, isn't it? Yeah, no, we're just praying that they're not influenced badly by other people over there. Do you know what I sometimes say to my wife? Yeah, we just have to make sure our boys don't influence those people negatively when they come and play. Are you hearing me? Why do we always think that the, the, the outsiders over there are the baddies and we are the goodies? God wants us to have a mindset that acknowledges our own frailty. Then you see all these moms in denial saying, no, my child couldn't have done that. My child? No, I'm going to speak to the headmaster. My child's stealing. There are many people in jail today and they've all got moms who were great moms, but they're in jail because they were stealing. So your child can also steal. You know what the problem with collectivism is? We then end up hiring family members for our businesses because the assumption is that my own family member will never steal from me. I don't know that there are many family members today who steal from family members. It's always the outsider. Collectivist pride. I am better than you. Where there's this pecking order. They're the baddies out there. And you know what it results in? Can I just share with you positive stereotyping? You see, when we have stereotypes, often we speak about stereotypes in a negative sense, don't we? And we say, oh, that's a bad label to put on that group. But you know that very often, we actually have positive stereotypes. Let me give an example. Do you know that um, if you look at the psychology of voting, right? There's this mindset that if someone is good looking, then it says something about their moral attributes. That's very dangerous, isn't it? So, oh, that person is so beautiful, so they must also be kind. They must also be caring. Now, what's the relationship between how good-looking someone is and their morality? Do you know that according to research, now this is very interesting, this proper full-on research that was carried out uh, by one of the universities in the United States, it's actually been found that good-looking men Handsome men practice infidelity 2.67 times more than plain-looking guys. <laughs> so if you think you're a good-looking guy, pray, pray, pray. <laughs> Ladies, if you're married to a good-looking guy, pray for him because the risk is higher. Now we can go deeper into it. Maybe there's more opportunity for that person. I don't know. The same research was carried out for women who are beautiful and they didn't see a correlation. In other words, just because someone is a beautiful woman doesn't mean she cheats. Isn't that interesting? But with men, statistically, the risk was higher. Who's a fine looking brother here? <laughs> Need to pray for him. <laughs> okay. It's interesting, these are positive stereotypes that are there. I keep saying to you, embrace the truth. When you're voting for people, they showed a, a, a relationship between height and US presidents being voted in. They showed a link between that. They did studies on the internet during times of election to see 
What do people look up? What do people look up when they're searching Donald Trump, Barack Obama? They look, one of the things was their height. People like to search, how, how tall is Donald Trump? Six foot three. How tall was Abraham Lincoln? Six foot four. It's actually been found in terms of the popular vote that more than two-thirds, more than two-thirds was going, when you, when you divide it up and saying who's going to go for this person, more than two-thirds of the votes went to the taller president. There's some exceptions, for example, Barack Obama, who's six foot one, in 2012 he won the election, and not Mitt Romney, who's six foot two. But Barack is still very tall, still tall. What's the relationship between height and leadership? But the perception that people had was, if you're taller, you're a better communicator and a stronger leader, especially during times of war. Isn't that strange? There's some short guys who are like machines, who are strong leaders. Okay, Winston Churchill, Mussolini. <laughs> there have actually been studies on short leaders, actually, that have been carried out. Can you hear what I'm saying? We have positive biases, and these are very dangerous. When you have someone saying, but he's so educated, he's got a PhD, so therefore he won't be violent and he won't attack me. And then women put themselves at risk because they're assuming that because this person is intelligent and has got a PhD, he also can't be violent. I mean, there are a lot of very violent leaders we've had on the African continent who are very educated. Are we believing lies or are we embracing the truth? Have you believed a lie that has resulted in you being so collectivist that somehow you, you've made your in-group saints and you've villainized everyone else? May God forgive us. May God forgive us. What the research showed, only in the 1960s though, did psychological research reveal the sad truth? Basically, we persuade ourselves of their greatness, projecting virtues onto the beautiful without the slightest knowledge of whether they possess them. Study after study has since shown we assume them, beautiful people, we assume them to be smarter, kinder, more generous, and more trustworthy than their less comely counterparts, even when we have nothing more to go on than pictures of their faces. This tendency, referred to as what's beautiful is good stereotype, affects men and women, adults and children, people of every race, religion and ethnicity. It applies whether the target of our gaze is a potential mate or a prospective head of government. Something else I also want to challenge is the dumb blonde myth. You know, there's this myth that if you've got blonde hair, then you're not clever. You know what I'm talking about. And we have all the blonde jokes that had been carried out. Now, this was disproven by a guy from Ohio State University. And what he actually did was he carried out this research among so-called white women to see, in terms of IQ, in terms of intelligence, they actually used a military test. All right, military intelligence test, brilliant stuff. And guess what they found? That for that particular piece of research, the blonde-haired women actually came out scoring higher than the other ones. It wasn't statistically significant enough to then say, so they're cleverer. So we want to create another myth that blonde-haired women are cleverer. But what it did do was it disproved the notion that if you've got blonde hair, then you're not as smart. And you might say, but Paul, what has this got to do with us? Do you know what a lot of blonde-haired women go through based on perception? 
just like a lot of black females go through, based on perception of intelligence. Why? Where does it come from? It's a lie from the pit of hell. Amen? I still remember in 2001, I was speaking in the States, and there was a blonde-haired female. She was heading up a chamber of commerce, and she said to me, Paul, I was still very young at the time, Paul, do you experience discrimination because of your age? I experience it because of my blonde hair, despite the fact that I'm very educated and I'm heading up this chamber of commerce. How do you treat people? How do you treat a female because of her looks? Because sometimes it's the other way around, isn't it? When a guy is good looking, we assume he's got reasonable levels of intelligence. When a woman is beautiful, some men look down on that and they think like, mm, I don't think she's, she, can have, she can't have both, you know, super intelligent and also the looks. Do you know that they've carried out research on uh, speed dating? And guess what they found? They found that when a guy was good looking, women saw that person as attractive, or when the guy was intelligent, they could go for him whether or not his looks were good or not. But guess what? When it came to women, guys were attracted to women who physically looked beautiful, but then the cleverer a woman was, at a certain point, they were no longer attracted to the woman. Initially, her brains got their attention, but at a certain point, they were put off by her being very intelligent, unless her looks matched the intelligence. That's what the research is showing. Isn't it sad, though? Now, we laugh and we think these things are strange. I'm trying to bring it from the unconscious to the conscious for you. Because I can tell you right now, as you go through your week and you're making decisions, subconsciously, we make them based on a lot of stereotypes. And we need to be conscious of these things. Amen. You know, when you look at the history of the United States. In the 19th century in America, American white Protestants hated the Chinese, hated the Irish, the Jews, and the Catholics. I'm not saying they all hated them, right? Because they saw them as a threat to their livelihood and familiar way of life. So sometimes when you're part of a group of people and you see that group over there, foreigners, as a threat, you start seeing them as the enemy and you discriminate against them. And sometimes it's because of a lack of an abundance mentality, isn't it? God can provide for all of us. There's room for all of us. Why do I need to marginalize you? Just because you're coming and you want to share a piece of the pie. Number three, fear. Essentially, this is the fear of strangers. You will fear what you don't understand. You will also avoid that which you fear. When you're afraid of something, it increases the distance between you and those people. Sometimes it's a self-protective mechanism. Better the devil you know. I know at least with this group of people, they speak the same language as me, they dress like me, so I'm safe with them. These people, oh, we don't know them. Where is he from? Tanzania. We don't know those people. You know why it's, you know why it's so sad? So you'll find parents today would rather their daughter marries someone from the same community, whether the person is also a Christian or not, than someone who's a radical believer, but from a different country. It's happening today. We say, but you're a Christian. Surely that is much more important than where the person is from? 
He who don't know those people, maybe he's pretending. Number four, laziness. A lot of times we have stereotypes because we are lazy. When we're mentally and socially lazy, we develop stereotypes that cause prejudice. It's easier to deal with categories and labels when we don't want to process too much information. Is this person safe or not? Let me just group them. Those are the safe people to be around and those are the unsafe people to be around. We're too lazy to actually find out. Hey, Paul Barnabas, tell me about your life. Tell me about your value system. So you just label people, hey, these Nigerians. You can't trust them. Stress. Very often when you're in a stressful situation, for example, a border war, you know what you end up doing? You just say, the people on the other side of the border, they're all bad, evil, demonic people. And we are the saints. And as long as you view those people like that, you justify in your mind why you can shoot them. Because you struggle in your mind just shooting someone and killing someone who you see as created by God. When soldiers are fighting in a war, they're not told by their generals, you know what guys, let's just meditate on how God really values those people out there, how they were also created in God's image. No, to justify the war, you have to villainize the other people. Not so. And we see this happening. And we need to repent and renounce these things. Number six, transference. This is inappropriate repetition in the present of a relationship that was important in a person's childhood. It's the redirection of feelings and desires onto an object, particularly those unconsciously retained from childhood. So with transference, you have an initial trauma. Maybe it was a bad relationship with your father. And now you transfer that onto all men in society. And now you've got this negative view and negative stereotype of men. Men are horrible, men are dangerous. You have a bad experience with your ex-husband and now you transfer that onto all men in society. You have a bad experience with men, it might be molestation, it might be abuse or things you saw when you were growing up and you transfer these onto all people out there. How many gentlemen do we have in this room? How many of you men here have experienced a situation where you're trying to help a lady out and you're being a good gentleman, kind, caring, but she reacts because she thinks you're hitting on her? How many of you have had that experience? I think almost all the men who raised their hands earlier on, their hand is still up, where you're misunderstood. I want to encourage you gentlemen, that's not to do with you. It's to do with the filters through which she sees the world because of transference. If she's had a bad experience with guys abusing her, guys being the sweet talkers, she might have lumped you into that group too. Amen. Ladies, are some of you rejecting the gentlemen that are trying to befriend you? But it's not because of that gentleman, it's because of experiences you've had in the past. Maybe you're pushing away the people God is sending to you. If my eyes land on you as a female, please, I'm not thinking of you, okay? I'm just speaking to you. But if the shoe fits, please wear it. You're praying, Lord, please bless me with a really nice dude. That nice dude pitches up, but you're like, oh, there must be a catch, he's too nice. There must be something fishy about this. 
And then you get into abusive relationships because of what we call the tyranny of the familiar. I know I'd rather settle for something that's not that great. That's how my life has always been. So I'll just settle for it. These guys who are gentlemen, can't trust them. Especially those Christian ones, maybe they're pretending. Yes, I can see the guy going all out in praise and worship, but maybe he's just doing it as a show. I've seen Christian guys, I can't trust them. And there this guy is there, on a silver platter, God is saying, there, he's there. Become friends with him. I'm getting serious looks from some of the sisters. Now, if you go and get into a relationship with a dubious person now, don't say, yeah, I know, the pastor told me it's okay. It's your fault. <laughs> Number seven, economic causes. Economic causes. How do you that greed is a major factor in justifying prejudice? If you look at some of the colonialism that took place, there's a lot of greed. If you look at what took place in Australia, for example, when the British went there, you know the British would have a thing where they would actually try to foster some of the Aboriginal kids and say, let's integrate them into some of the British families and some of the settlers who were settling in Australia so that we literally squash out Aboriginal culture. And sometimes it can even be justified. Well, these guys are heathen. They don't believe in the one true God. So let's get rid of their parents, let's bring these kids in and they'll stay with us. But a lot of it was driven by greed and economic gain. You know that today as we sit here in this nation, a lot of institutional and structural racism is being perpetuated because people, certain people want all the tenders. I know, no. so these tenders will only be for this group of people. Those people over there can't get it. And have you noticed that there are more and more rules around these things and it's excluding a whole group of people. But when you actually ask more than two questions deep, you see that a lot of it is being stimulated and proliferated by greed. The spirit of greed is a biggie. Some of you are saying, but why are there these laws? Why? A lot of the laws are driven by moral issues in people's hearts. And let's watch out for that. Number eight, immigration. Very often when someone immigrates to a particular country, what do they do? They look for people from the same country. And then they group up together. Because we will support each other and we'll be there for each other. But when you're seen as a group and you're not integrated into society, what ends up happening? People can label you. People say, you guys are like this, you guys are over there, you're like that. And then people might think, hey, but they're all clever people, and they all want to take our jobs. Can you see the increase of racism because of immigration? I want to encourage you, if you're from another country and you're living here in South Africa, mix with South Africans. Don't just stay with your group. Amen? Enjoy your culture, enjoy the group that you're a part of, but don't be exclusive. Integrate. Justification, number nine, justification of our own hatred. Justification of our own hatred. If I hate a particular group of people, let's say I don't like Indian people, and it's a heart issue, I can continue not liking Indian people simply because I want to justify my hatred of them. And so when someone says, but repent of this, repent of this, this is not great, this is prejudice. I will want to believe negative things about the Indian people 
just so that I comfort myself with the fact that my hatred is okay. Are you hearing me? So what ends up happening is I will only look for the negative just to comfort myself so that I'm like, it's okay that I don't like them. Obviously not talking about myself because I like Indian people, right? I'm using it as an example. Number 10, propaganda. You see it so often. Ballet is just for girls. Stereotypes like that, but there's propaganda around it. Soccer is for black people only. That's another stereotype, okay? And very often it's proliferated by what we see in, in the news. Your view of the world can be influenced by whether you watch CNN or Fox News or CNBC, or whatever you watch. Do you watch SABC? Do you watch ENCA? And sometimes we have to actually look at how some of these stations started. For example, Fox News was started in about 1996, I think it was, and it was going to be the media arm for the Republicans in the United States. And if you look at the median, the average age of the people who watch Fox News in the States, average age is 68. And the guys who watch Fox News, they really like, like it. When CNN was started by Ted Turner in 1980, the goal was we want to be the biggest, the best, and so on. And sometimes CNN can be a bit annoying for some people because they'll have blinkers and they'll literally, oh, there's this war going on and that's all they'll talk about. Oh, there's this earthquake, oh, that's all they'll talk about. Oh, there's this missing plane, that's all they'll talk about. But the many times you're listening to that and viewing it actually ends up affecting your perception of what's really happening in the world. Are you hearing me this morning? Many of you who grew up in this nation during the apartheid era, you were affected by the propaganda. Though depending on which side you were on. In Southern Africa, a big one was, these people are terrorists, these people are communists, we need to wipe them out. And they had to have that view of those people to justify the behavior. I want to encourage you, when you watch the news, watch it through the biblical lens. When you watch the news, say to yourself, okay, what the journalist is saying seems to be very factual. And often it is. But what aren't they telling me? And then don't just listen to what the journalist is saying. Try to also listen to what the commentator is saying. Because often journalists will share facts, but then the commentator will have the bias. And you see that in the United States. You see that here in Southern Africa. So don't take everything as law and Bible truth. I like what someone said, uh, there's a lady, she's a former journalist called Donna Halper. She said, um, speaking of American news channels, she said, she said, by and large, what they all have in common is their corporate, so their businesses. They're owned by major conglomerates that expect regular increases, increases, increases in readership, listenership, or viewership. Thus, each outlet creates what it believes will be popular and what network executives believe will get a sizable audience, as well as lots of advertising revenue. So a lot of it ends up being money-making. Isn't it sad when you watch a film on TV and you think it's really, really great, but then there's vulgar language in it, and you think, why does it need all this vulgar language? I don't feel like watching this. 
You see, often they look at the polls and they see what's going to sell. Like, why do they have to have that nude scene? It just messes up the movie. How I many of you are feeling me on this one? The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So people are guided by that. What will make us popular? What do people want to hear and what to, want to listen to? How many of you know when Jesus preached, he didn't just do what was popular? When I'm preaching right now, I'm not preaching this message because I think, ah, it's what people want to hear. It's what scratches their ear. As a true pastor, we must preach what God is saying. We must preach what people need to hear, not what the, popu um, the, what the population thinks will be nice and will tickle their, ear, their ears. Otherwise, we'll do motivational messages every Sunday. I remember one time preaching a message about intimacy with God years ago in about 2007 in a church we were pastoring. And I said to uh, one of the visitors who was visiting, I said, so how did you find the message? And he said, you know what, uh, it was a bit different. I think I can apply it to my marriage maybe, but I'm used to my pastor, you know. He always preaches these motivational messages where like, I feel like I'm boosted, you know. And on Sunday, I feel like I can take on the week. Let's look at New Testament Christianity. Sometimes we have to preach on holiness. Sometimes we have to preach on prejudice. Sometimes we have to preach on sacrifice. Amen? So be very careful about propaganda. People tell me today, people who've come from racist backgrounds, and they'll say, Paul, you know what? That was the propaganda we grew up with. This is what we were being told day in, day out. It's just how we grew up. Paul, you know what? We think maybe it will be different for our grandchildren. That's one big excuse. No, it can change. God can change your heart today. We don't have to wait until it's our grandkids. Amen? Number 11, rationalization. Rationalization means making something seem reasonable even when it is not to most people. So a person persuades himself that discriminating against some group is for the good of society. So what did Hitler do? Hey guys, you know what? It's for our own good. It's for the societal good. If we get rid of these Jews, these Jews are not great for our society and for our Germany. And he brainwashed the people of Germany to believe that. Amen? Number 12, it's generationally passed on by observation. So your children are observing you. If you go and you hug someone, nice squeeze, but to the person next to them who's of a different so-called racial group, you give them a, size, a side hug, like you don't really want to come into close contact with them. Kids pick up on things like that, hey? There was a time when I was at a, shop, a shopping center, and there was a white guy with car keys and a wallet walking around, and he comes to me and he says, please, please, you know what? We just, it was just after one of these holidays, these long weekends or something. And he says, um, we've just come from Durban, we need to go home. Home is Pretoria, north, somewhere there, but we've run out of fuel. Please, can we borrow some money? Can we have some money, please? All right? And he says, I can actually show you. And I said, where's your wife? He says, my wife and I. I said, where's your wife? Because I was trying to suss out the story. And he says, I can even show you. And here's my wife. His wife was there in the car. He says, I'm sorry, we feel terrible about this and so on. So in my mind, I gave, so I gave them some money, but it was enough money for fuel, fuel money, so it wasn't just loose change. 
My son Samuel asked me, he says, Dad, how come with the, the, the black beggars, when they ask for money, you just give them a few rand? But when these guys asked, you gave them quite a bit of cash. Are you hearing me? Kids are observing. And I said, it's because of the need. If a black person asks me and says, I need to go somewhere and I'm traveling on that bus to go from A to B, they need a sizable chunk of cash for that. So I had to show them that wasn't the, ba the basis wasn't the skin color, the basis was the need. But the point I'm making is he picked it up, he could see the difference. And to be honest with you, when I then gave him the money and I was speaking to the wife, the wife was shaking like this, like she was addicted to something. But it was kind of like after the effect, and I thought, look, I don't want to judge. Let me just bless them. Are you hearing me? Are there certain people you give to who seem like they're in a certain class, but there were certain other people you kind of like just think, ah, okay, this, this, this is what this guy needs. Let's be honest about it, people. Our children are observing. You're taught who to fear. You're taught who to be cautious about. You're taught as you're growing up that when this type of person comes to my house, they, will, they could steal. But with this other person, I know it's fine, we're all relaxed. Even in church settings, please be careful, hey? Because there's different people who come to church. Some people come to pray, and some people come to raise things. Seriously, there's something that actually went missing. I don't want to scare you, but just please just watch your handbags, watch your things and so on. There's something that went missing. There's a, there's a hands-free mic. You know the new one I've been using? That nice show on. Can't find it. Place was locked up throughout the week and so on. So don't know when it happened. And I'm starting to wonder, like, did it happen? You know when we're all milling around afterwards praying for people? Come out! Come out in the name of Jesus! And there's someone going out with something. <laughs> Amen? And the pastor said, come out. Okay, come out, microphone. And I'm not wanting to scare you, but don't assume that, oh, we're in church. Christian people, no, nothing happens and so on. There's some people who might come and maybe they've got a problem in that area and they'll pick up something, even in church settings. That's hardly ever happened, by the way. So maybe it's somewhere around, but if you see it, please just... Let us know. We want to ask questions, yeah. If you feel convicted and you want to bring it back, just bring it back. <laughs> I'm joking. All right? Okay, I'm almost out of time. Let me say this. Number 13, media. So I'm no longer talking about news. I'm now talking about programs we watch on TV. For example, have you seen how teenagers are continuously stereotyped by adults? And even when you chat to your friends, it's like, well, this is what my teen did. Oh, do you think that's bad? This is what my teen did. Just because someone is a teenager doesn't mean they must be rebellious. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that. The concept of teenager is something that was a social construction. Do you know that in the Jewish culture, what they would have is, they would have bar mitzvah, where someone becomes a man when they're 13. And that's why today you've got these 22-year-old Jewish kids who are so confident and you think they're arrogant but they were being groomed into manhood from a young age. And there you are saying, ah, but you know what teens are like, yeah, you know what? and you're prophesying that over your teen. A teen can be a mature young adult who lives for God. And today we are seeing a lot of youngsters being radical. I saw it with my younger brothers. As they were teens and I was a young adult, 
And I saw them so radical for Jesus. Amen? And your child can be that too. Be careful of what you see on the media, right? Number 14 in the media. Number 14, relational ease. We have not been called to socialize along the lines of least resistance. Have you noticed how sometimes we socialize only along the lines of least resistance? Ah, this person speaks my language, so it's easier. Ah, it's just easier, we just click. Maybe the person God is calling you to be good friends with is someone who doesn't speak your language or struggles with your language. And God wants to use them to minister to you. We tend to migrate towards people who look like us, who act like us, who think like us. It's less stressful. Number 15, exaggeration of differences, real differences. Those people eat intestines. <gasps> That's strange. Because you like, you like trotters, you like um, tripe, and so on. There's some people who think like that's weird. Just like you look at the French people and you think like they eat frogs. And they look at you and they're like, well, you eat intestines. <laughs> and sometimes what we do is we have real differences, but then we exaggerate them. Look at those weird people because of what they eat. And then finally, number 16, psychological factors. Psychological factors. You know that there's some people psychologically their personality is that they like certainty they don't like to feel uncertain and those people have got a bias toward becoming prejudiced they, they're actually prejudicial right you see it for example with people who come from authoritarian backgrounds or have what we call authoritarian personalities they like structure, respect for authority. They don't like any uncertainty. And when they see someone who's different, they alienate the person because the person is different. That's why you can have two people who are raised in the same family. And one of them ends up being very racist and the other one isn't. Because the one who ends up becoming very racist, racist their personality is more authoritarian. Does that make sense? Okay? And watch out for these things. I'm going to close there. Let's pray. You're here this morning and you're in a space where you're like, you know what, this is so true. I've pointed fingers at other people for many years, but I see that within my heart, there's stereotypes that have formed. There's prejudice I have. Maybe some of these stereotypes are positive. You don't have the facts about the people, but you've just got a positive bias Maybe it's toward your own people. Maybe it's toward your own children. Maybe it's toward people who have a certain type of look. But you're saying this morning, I want to embrace truth in the inward parts. I want to embrace truth in my life. I'm tired of the judgments that I've made. I'm tired of the judgments people have made toward me. And you're saying, I want to be like Jesus. Just like Jesus was toward that centurion. Just like Jesus was concerning children. I want to challenge the labels. I want to challenge the stereotypes. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I want to be part of this army of people that is going to come in the opposite spirit in this nation. 
I want to be part of this army of people that's going to challenge the status quo. I want you to stand where you are. You're saying, I want to make a stand for righteousness. You know that you're called to break down the spirit of racism in this nation. You've heard things being spoken about foreigners. And you're saying, I want to be one of those people who stands against it. I want to be part of this army. Just stand where you are. I want to pray for us today. Father God, you see us as a church and you see us as a people. And we're saying we want to stand and we want to be counted. We're saying, God, before you this morning, we want to be those who uproot racism in society, who uproot prejudice in society. But Lord, we want to be an example and we want to be role models. We don't want to just engage in a war of words, but we want to embrace your people. We want to embrace the people that you have created. Lord, I pray for each one, even as they're responding to your word this morning. And I say, please help us as a church and help us as a people. Help us as we rise up, almighty God, and we come against the status quo. Give us the spirit of boldness, Lord God, in this time of our lives. Give us the spirit of boldness to stand and be counted. Lord, I pray for us as a congregation that you deal with our hearts this morning. Father, we ask for your forgiveness where we've judged other people. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and for your cleansing. And we say, may you start with us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And the people of God said, Amen.